Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 29th of December. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, part two of our holiday spectacular, we are looking to the year ahead. From Kiev to the halls of Congress. What will we be watching in 2023? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, hopefully you joined us last week and so know that this is part two, as we said at the top, of our annual holiday tradition in which we look at the year that was and look ahead to the year that will be. One quick housekeeping note about the year that will be is that I will not be here on this podcast. My position at The New Statesman is coming to an end, and so thus my time as co-host of this glorious podcast is as well. I'm so proud of so much of what I've done here at The New Statesman, and this podcast is really a huge part of that. I've really enjoyed being a part of your lives, listeners. You can find me at Emily C. Tampkin, Twitter, Substack, Post, my book, Bad Jews. Hopefully, we'll continue to find each other. But I also hope that you will continue to find this podcast. And I know that my colleagues will will see it through. It is the end of an era, Emily. <laughs> yes. We've been, Jeremy, I mean, this used to be just Jeremy and and I like peppering guests with questions. And now it's this twice weekly thing with some razzle dazzle. No, I'm, I'm I'm really proud of what we've launched and what we've grown. And I know that it will continue to, to grow and it will be different, but it'll still be a podcast well worth listening to. I'll be rooting for you guys from afar. 200, 240 episodes it's been. Really? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, all right. Well, let's make this one the best one yet. No, listeners, we are going to be looking ahead to 2023 as we uh, forewarned at the top there. Some of us will be making predictions. Some of us will just sort of be noting what we're watching, but all with an eye toward the year that is to come. So, Jeremy, get us started with your first prediction. 
Yeah, well, when Emily says some of us are making predictions, she basically means the foolhardy ones who are willing to <laughs> take their credibility into their hands rather than sensible ones who would just rather sort of set the scene. So my, my foolhardy prediction, number one, is that um, I don't think it's too foolhardy, actually, but it's, it's that 2023 will be the year when new fractures grow in the global West. What do I mean by that? 2022, as discussed on the previous uh, Look Back episode, was a year in which in some ways the West or the global West as it is called, so the US and its allies in Europe and the Pacific, perhaps proved to be more resilient than some might have expected. You know, there, there were differences over Ukraine, but broadly speaking, the US and its closest allies hung together on sanctions, on providing Ukraine with various forms of support, be it um, economic or military, and sort of stood relatively united behind Kiev and actually kind of provided a bit of a narrative of Western resilience. Now, I think that's not going to vanish in 2023, but I do think it will become more strained on various fronts. Firstly, I think that we're already seeing an economic gulf opening up between the US and Europe, particularly as a result of Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and its Buy American provisions and the support, you know, the subsidies it pays, billions of dollars of subsidies it pays American industry, which is very contentious here in Europe and there is a, it is it is accused of of being protectionist and i think there is there is a hope in 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 cities like berlin where i am or or, or brussels that biden will can be lent on to pull back on some of this i don't think that's realistic i think particularly with the 2024 us election coming you know the salience of the economic conditions particularly in sort of blue collar swing states will only grow I don't see Biden and the administration resiling from the act. I mean, it's it's already in train; it's already passed. So I just I think that's going to um, only increase over the course of the year. So I think you'll have that. There's obviously a big gulf between the US and Europe in terms of how the energy crisis is being felt, much more severe in Europe. And I think Europe's going to have a really hard 2023 economically. I think next winter will be harder than this one for various reasons. It will be harder to fill the gas stores, for example. Some of the energy saving measures that industry has been able to take on the side of the Atlantic were the kind of low hanging fruit. And I think that further efficiencies will eat more into production. So I think there's a lot of scope for conflict and tension across the Atlantic there. Then you've also got topics like China, where I think you will see kind of greater strains between the US and its allies. Yes, in Europe, the likes of Macron or Schultz, who want a more of a middle way with regards to Beijing, but also actually with some of the US's Asian allies. I mean, there has been some bridling in Tokyo and Seoul at elements of the tech war, for example, and elements of the administration's attempts to decouple technologically from China on sort of strategically valuable technologies or cutting edge technologies. So I think there there's the scope for division two. And then finally, I think we might see this happen over Ukraine itself, particularly if if Ukraine makes further advances, and let's hope it does. But to the point, for example, where it, the Ukrainian government might consider trying to retake the Crimea. And I think if it comes to that, you will see divisions between different parts of the West as to whether or not to continue supporting that or whether to push Kiev towards the negotiating table. So I think all in all, it will be a year of greater Western division. I think that sounds like a safe prediction, although as we have uh, as we learned last week, you never, you never really know. Do, do, you, do you agree with my sort of take on the domestic politics of Yeah, uh, I do. I mean... Mine, I don't want to spoil my prediction, which is also about sort of about Western politics. But generally, I think I think that sounds right. Although, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic, but also still in it. And I think it's hard to say. I mean, I just think of, you know, the the, the line about transitory inflation, right, of 2021 that ended up being basically wrong. Um, and I think the economic impact of the pandemic are still with us in ways that we're not really 
totally ready to grapple with? And how does that affect our politics? So generally, I think that you're right, but I'm going to be a coward and caveat it by saying that we don't, don't we don't totally know, which obviously you're well aware of as this is prediction, not etching anything in stone. So with that, what is your prediction, Ido, or your what are you looking ahead to in the next year? So I'll be looking at um, the coming election in Turkey, which is scheduled for June. And particularly, I, I'm not going to sort of predict whether Erdogan will be the current president will be ousted or anything like that. I think it's far too uncertain. And there are far too many, too many variables. But this is going to be one of the, I think, pivotal elections of the next year, because Erdogan is facing one of the strongest challenges to his rule possibly since coming to power, um, notably from figures such as the current mayor of Istanbul, who was this month sentenced to two years and seven months in prison on charges of insulting the election authority, which if it's upheld would mean the mayor being banned from running in, in the election. And this sort of, I think, foreshadows a very potentially fractitious and contentious uh, few months when essentially the question is whether Erdogan allows himself to lose the election um, or to risk losing the election. We've seen over the past year or, or two years of mixed mixed results for these sorts of united oppositions against strong men. They obviously failed in Hungary, as you correctly predicted, Emily, but succeeded in Israel before failing again. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Erdogan could lose. But I think one of the kind of most important questions of of the year is going to be to what extent Erdogan tries to prevent himself having the possibility of losing the election. And sort of relatedly, there are also going to be parliamentary elections in Poland, where similarly, um, there could be a sort of united opposition attempt to to oust the current law and justice party, which is uh, one of these kind of populist parties, which has not been afraid to spar with the EU. And as a result, yeah, and, and has kind of been accused of undermining the independence of the judiciary and all these all these sorts of things. It's less extreme than in, than in Hungary, but it is part of this story of kind of strongman or authoritarian right right populist um, rule across across the Western world. And again, this will be, I think, an interesting one to watch. I think that's that's a good choice, as indeed you know, both of those elections look, judging by the polls at least, to be very close. So you know, nail biters in both cases, and in mm-hmm. both cases, countries whose significance geopolitically has risen a great deal in the last year as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine. You know, Poland as the, in many ways, the linchpin of Europe's support for Ukraine, and Turkey as this crucial pivot state able to operate to sort of deal with both the West and, and, and with Russia. I'd just throw in one other quick thing, which is, I mean, I do wonder whether as part of the efforts Edwin might go to to distort the election or to win the election by foul means, whether that takes a foreign policy form, whether that's stirring up further tensions with Greece, you know, does he land troops on one of the Aegean islands? Does he send ground forces over the border into northern Syria to take on the Kurds there? Does he try something off the coast of Cyprus. I mean, tensions have been rising in the Eastern Med over the last months anyway, and you can just see how in the sort of fervor running up to a Turkish election, and indeed, by the way, a Greek election, there's a Greek election by, by July as well, whether that might create a sort of perfect storm. So definitely, definitely a good choice of a topic to watch. The Poland remark reminds me of early on in this, or earlier on in this podcast, when every week we spoke about the Polish presidential election. And do you remember this and, and watch this as sort of, you know, a harbinger of what might be for Central and Eastern Europe? I think liberals were disappointed 
that time. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens this year for Warsaw. Emily, what's your first prediction? Yeah, mine is also sort of political prediction. There's a joke in US media political coverage that's Dems in disarray. And it's always about how the Democratic Party just cannot get its act together. There's infighting. What is wrong with these, these people? My prediction for 2023 is that it will be Republicans who are in disarray. I think we're already seeing this with the speaker's race. Kevin McCarthy, who one would think would be speaker, is having you know some difficulty already mustering the number of votes. Um, Donald Trump. I, I don't think it's. I don't think. I actually don't think that he's the entire reason that Republicans did as badly as they did in the midterms. Like Donald Trump didn't make them take the stance on abortion that they did, but his endorsed candidates did very poorly. I think there's this sense in some corners that like we we have to dump this loser for our own electoral future, but he's running for president again, so he doesn't want to let go. I sort of wonder who how the fight to get the nomination is going to go. I don't, you know, he's clearly not going to go quietly. He was not content to just be kingmaker, and not content to you. You could see it from the way that the statement that he put out. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has not yet said that he's not running for president, and Trump put out the statement that was like, in terms of loyalty and class, that's not really the right answer. So that will be a fight. I think everywhere from Congress to, you know, throughout the states in the presidential nomination, they're just, the Republican Party does not know what it wants to be. You know, is, is it going to, are, do they want to continue to be fully mask off <laughs> and just, and, and give in to the most extreme elements? Now, and now that they've done that, can they go back to not doing that? I find it very difficult to believe that this party will be a center-right party at any point in the foreseeable future. To be clear, I think this would be bad. Can they find people who are savvier about being an extreme-right party than than Trump is? I don't know. Well, we're going to find out. And I also, one thing I will say is that polling suggests that young Republicans in particular are extremely staunch Trump supporters, which makes sense because if you if you have recently elected to join this party, you you pretty much know what it is. You know, it's not like, oh, well, I registered in 1952 and what a change. That's not that's not where we're at right now. So that will be interesting as well. Are they able to keep younger voters if they moderate the candidates at the top of the ticket? And is it, is it safe to say that it will get ugly between DeSantis and Trump? Uh, yeah, I think if DeSantis runs, there's no way it's he's already nicknaming him. You know, he's already called him Ron DeSanctimonious. Not his best, nor is it his worst. You know, and, and DeSantis has kind of winked at it like, well, look at the results in Florida compared to the results elsewhere. It, it will be interesting to see how De- if DeSantis manages to become a national figure. I think we've had moments before where somebody who performed very well in one state was turned to as sort of the future of the party. And that just isn't what ended up happening. So we'll see. But I think the one prediction I am comfortable making right now is that there will be chaos in the Republican Party. Switching gears Quite wildly now, we are going to turn to a little recording by Katie Stallard, our senior editor for China and Global Affairs. Here's her prediction for the future of Russia's war in Ukraine. My prediction for the year ahead, and let me be clear that I really hope to be wrong about this, is that Russia's war against Ukraine will not come to an end. In the year ahead, I think we're likely to see the tempo of the conflict slow, to see fewer dramatic shifts in territory. But it's also clear that both sides are making an effort to regenerate their forces and preparing for renewed offensives. As we are recording this in late December, we have seen a series of Ukrainian successes in recent months. 
they have reclaimed vast swathes of territory in the northeast and latterly also the important regional capital, Kherson, in the southwest. We are still seeing, however, heavy fighting in the east of the country, around the town of Bakhmut, and we are seeing wave after wave of Russian attacks on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. For Russia, I think the priority is going to be playing for time. I think that the purpose of all of these attacks on, on power plants, on Ukraine's ability to supply it, it, its citizens with, with heat, electricity, water, um, is to make the winter months as cold, dark and miserable as possible, to inflict maximum suffering on Ukrainian civilians, to undermine, potentially, although I think unlikely, um, support for Ukraine's government, to push a new wave of refugees into Europe, to really ramp up the costs of supporting Ukraine for its Western partners. It is certainly the case that Russia's economy is suffering, but I think Putin's calculation is still likely to be that if he can sustain this war for long enough, then the West will crack first and start pressuring Ukraine to succeed, particularly as we're now seeing here in the United States, the return of divided government with the Republicans in control of the House and the 2024 presidential election cycle getting underway. From the Ukrainian side, we should be clear, firstly, that Russia could stop this war at any time of its choosing by stopping fighting and withdrawing its troops from Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't have that option. The option for Ukraine is whether or not to stop defending itself, which, when you understand the kind of scenes that they are finding every time they take back a, a town or a village, they are finding mass graves, they're finding evidence of war crimes, they're finding torture chambers. So there is a powerful imperative for the Ukrainian forces to keep fighting, to keep taking back territory, to not leave their citizens to suffer under Russian occupation. But the other side to this is that, you know, Ukraine has a lot of experience of dealing with Russia, particularly over the last eight years since the start of the war in the east of the country. That experience is that every time it signs up for a ceasefire deal, Russia breaks that ceasefire and it uses the time to, to regroup, to prepare another attack. So Ukraine's government has absolutely no reason to believe that even if a serious ceasefire offer was on the table, and it's not, Ukraine has no reason to believe that that deal would be honoured and that it would be anything other than a pause that allows Russia to rebuild its strength and prepare to attack again. So I think Ukraine has every reason to keep fighting, to keep defending itself, and Russia is likely to drag this out for as long as it can. So unfortunately, I see no sign of an imminent end to the conflict in sight. I, I fully agree with Katie. I think I think it is likely to drag on, sadly. Although there are discussions now, I think, in, in, in Europe about what the reconstruction will involve. That is becoming more concrete. It's just a case of when we actually get to that point. One other prediction I'd sort of bonus prediction I'd throw in related to this, which is in my longer piece on on the year ahead, which we'll put in the show notes, is that 
um, centrifugal force forces will accelerate on Russia's periphery. You know, it's very clear that that unrest in some of the internal Russian republics is bubbling away. You know, these are the parts of Russia that have been most called on for um, troops to send to the front line in Ukraine. So there's that. And then beyond Russia's borders, in its former near abroad, you know, we've seen examples this year of countries that used to be considered part of Russia's sphere of influence, turning away or denying Russia's say in their affairs, whether it's in the Caucasus, Armenia and Azerbaijan, whether it's Kazakhstan, whether it's Kyrgyzstan or other Central Asian states. You know, it's very clear that the gravitational pull of Moscow is not what it was. Now, whether that that is just a kind of gradual sort of leaking away of Moscow's authority or some sort of full-scale breakdown of authority is, is unclear. And I wouldn't want to say where I think on that spectrum it's going to fall. But I do think that will be a theme of the coming year and one closely re- related to the points that uh, Katie makes. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. 
only one thing to do, and that's go to round two. Jeremy. So my second sort of prediction is that I think the EU will miss its best available window for a big leap forward in terms of reform and necessary integration. You know, I think there's, there is a consensus now across the, many of the major capitals, including Paris, Brussels and Berlin, that the EU does need major reforms. You know, it has muddled its way through recent years. It has survived crises that some wrote up as being existential, but it's, it's always been in reaction mode. It has always been reacting to the latest crisis. And it's clear that ideally it would reform itself in a way to make it more, make, in a more proactive fashion um, in terms of energy integration, in terms of defense integration, you know, just talking about US politics, we don't know how long it will be until the US really wants to comprehensively pivot to the Pacific, even given current events in Eastern Europe. It's also clear that a new wave of enlargement, eastwards enlargement, is, is, is rising up the agenda. That's obviously, I think, good news to sort of to draw in the Western Balkans and in the long term states like Moldova and indeed Ukraine. But that will involve major change within the Union. You know, it can't, it can't continue to operate on its current structures with 30, 32, 33, 34 members, including quite sizable members that are a lot poorer than the average. So I think things like... Um, abolishing the veto or, or the unanimity requirement for things like foreign policy or tax also mm. need to be on the agenda. So there is an obvious um, big reform agenda that probably requires treaty change to ready the EU for the realities of the mid-late 2020s and beyond. And a sensible union, a far-sighted union, would take this coming year as the chance to do so. You know, we've gone through the, the Franco-German election season in the last 18 months or two, two years. We've got another European election in 2024, and that doesn't just mean a new European Parliament, it means turnover in the other institutions, so the Commission, for example. So 2023 is a very obvious year to really, to try and take those steps. But I, my pessimistic take is that the EU will not do that. I think there will be incremental progress, maybe on some forms of defence integration. Potentially, uh, I could imagine a new um, common fund to support states through the energy crisis, I think because you are going to see real tensions between those most hard hit over the course of the years and those less hard hit, those that can afford to bail out their industries and those that can't, I think that could become a major topic and that could lead to some sort of new structure. But I don't see the kind of big bang that I've just described coming this year because the divisions at the moment are too great. There is a sort of tetchiness between Paris and Berlin, which undermines that supposed motor of the EU, even though actually, you know, ideologically, I think Macron and Schultz are relatively close together and, they, and their governments are relatively close together. Another problem is that two of the other major states in the EU are currently run by, led by right-wing populists. So Italy under Giorgia Maloney and, as discussed, Poland under law and justice, at least until the elections in the autumn. And, you know, divisions have grown in some areas over Ukraine. You know, the, I think Germany and France have both lost a certain amount of credibility among uh, Central and Eastern European member states over this kind of ongoing appetite they seem to have for some sort of long-term accommodation with Russia so I, I just think those divisions, I think treaty change would be a tall order in any case, bringing in qualified majority voting, so ending unanimity requirements on big topics like foreign policy was always going to be a tall order. I think this would have been a good year or this would be a good year to, to try and rise to that challenge. But I, I unfortunately, I don't think the union will. I have one follow up, which is that one of the major threads of discussion of European foreign policy in 2022 seemed to be this idea of the Zeitenwende. This Schultz announced after Russia invaded Ukraine that this was like the turning of times or a new epoch or however you want to translate it. And then the sort of 
dueling narratives this year were, yes, it really was. And actually, no, Germany didn't mean it. And, uh, you know, we can sort of broaden this out maybe to Germany and France or Western Europe. Basically, which side do you, do you think that Europe did step into taking a more independent, robust, maybe hawkish foreign policy in 2022? And if so, or if not, do you think we'll see more of the same in 2023? Mm. I think that Zeitenwende was never going to be an, an event. It was always mm. going to be a process. It was always mm-hmm. going to be a long-term thing. And we forget that Schultz gave that speech on the 27th of February under a certain amount of pressure to move quite quickly on some of the right. topics that he was talking about. Like, you know, Nord Stream 2 was never going to survive, I think, the, the events of the 24th of February. And the, the curious thing about it is that on the one hand, Germany, to take that one case, has done things that were previously unthinkable. It's got it's about it's stopped progress on Nord Stream 2. It's uh, delivered lethal weaponry into a war zone, previously a taboo. It has approved a 100 billion euro fund for new defense spending. None of that would have happened without the 24th of February. And yet it has still not gone far enough for given the scale of the events, given the size of Germany, given its centrality. So whether we're talking about the, the overall state of the German armed forces, kind of huge kind of gaps in equipment, a lot of kit needing upgrading, the actual underlying German defense budget won't reach NATO's 2% of GDP target now until 2025, remarkably. The government here is still dragging its feet on some crucial military exports to Ukraine. So for example, battle tanks and the lessons of Germany's energy dependence on Russia do not seem to be being applied to its relationship with China. It should be an integral part of the Zeitenwende to say, you know, to actually ask some tough questions. What did we get wrong about the relationship with Russia and how do we avoid making that mistake in the future? But yet you have Schultz pushing through the sale of a stake in Hamburg's harbour to a Chinese state-backed firm. So on various fronts, you think, you know, has this really been internalised? And I think, so we have seen kind of the Zeitenwende as a an agenda item this year, but there is then this so-called the Zeitenwende im Kopf or the, the Zeitenwende in the heads. So, you know, will people actually start to, in Berlin, in strategic circles, start to think differently about their country's role and actually act on, on different impulses? And that, I think, is a longer-term story. So that's my, my hot take on the Zeitenwende. Great. A hot take on Zeitenwende. That's the worldview difference. Okay, Guido, what is your next prediction? Or not prediction. What is the other thing that you will be watching in 2023? Uh, this actually is a prediction, um, but I'm, yeah, I know, incredible, right? Oh, uh, I, I don't did this it's... for me, my last episode. Oh. Only only for you, Emily. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, go ahead, Ido. I, I don't think it's a particularly far-fetched one, um, but I do think it's one that's that's really interesting. Um, I think there's going to be a kind of moral panic over AI and specifically these uh, text generative models, which we spoke about a few weeks ago on the podcast so th- tools like ChatGPT and whatever potential um, successors and competitors to GPT are, are released over the next few years, I think that there's going to be serious alarm and, and kind of questioning over the role of these tools, particularly in education. I would not be comfortable writing parts or a whole article with ChatGPT. So for the moment, my editors can rest can rest easy, but. I am not confident that whatever ChatGPT produces would be worse than what I wrote when I was, say, 13 years old. And I can very much imagine if I was in school, I would be using this for assignments already, for mm-hmm. homework already. You know, if I was writing a, an essay on um, Of Mice and Men and I wanted three themes from the book, I can very, very easily imagine giving this over to ChatGPT. I think, I think first of all, there's going to be a kind of moral panic and like probably attempts to ban this or to 
try and regulate it and that they're not really going to work because now the cat is out of the bag. And we're also going to see some grappling with how to live with this tool. For example, does this mean we're going to have to go back to more oral examinations so that you can't so that students can't use these tools to write coursework that they submit and they actually have to learn they actually have to learn about these you know their books or or the history or whatever to then be able to talk about it uh, in an oral examination i think that's possible and kind of more broadly i think we're going to see a lot of grappling with the role of these generative text models in the professional world because they're now so good i mean they're not kind of they're not going to put me out of the job yet but i don't think they're that far away from potentially putting me out of a job and we're kind of really going to have to grapple with the place for these models in people's lives in kind of the professional environments around the world because they're they've really advanced much faster than most people thought even a few years ago and they're only going to get better the chat gpt is based on gpt3 um, and supposedly gpt4 is releasing in the next year or so and that is supposedly leaps and bounds better than gpt3 um, so you can really imagine a kind of real reevaluation of the role of these tools in professional life that i think we've only just started grappling with i think one thing that's that's frustrating listening to you is that or one would hope that these sort of conversations about the morals of this, the ethics of this, what this means for the for various industries, what this means for education, that those would be conversations that we would have before we unleash this technology. Of course, this is never how it goes, has never been how it's gone, right? I think, but I, I've just been thinking often about, you know, the internet today and what it ended up being and how it's changed our lives. And, and I, there have been similar moral panics and, and panic panics about, about all of that. And it doesn't feel like we learned a lot from that experience that we just went through in terms of talking about AI and thinking about AI before unleashing it. Now, I know that there are people who have been having these conversations, but it feels like society at large is kind of figuring it out as we go. I mean, so I think there are two things there. The first is that really you can't overestimate the extent to which this technology has gotten so much better, so mm. much faster than anyone expected. People were writing books about AI a couple of years ago saying, you know, maybe in like 15 years, these things will be able to write a convincing email. And like ChatGPT can write a pretty convincing email on any topic now. So this has gone so much faster than anyone expected. And the second is that, you know, we can have these sort of theoretical debates when we don't have a kind of concrete frame of reference for for what we're discussing but that's only going to really remain very theoretical and now that we actually have a tool where like if i was if i was 13 years old and i had to write an essay about you know three causes of the the great depression i could write like a pretty passable i write i could submit a pretty passable essay written by chat gpt and like i think i would get an okay grade um, so it's it's very. If any concrete. student it's- is listening to this podcast, this is not a recommendation or an endorsement. Um, no, um, no, you should. Uh, if you're frank, but frankly, if you're 13 years old and listening to this, um, <laughs> you've got bigger problems. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just on your on your point there, Ida, about the applications in education. I mean, as you say, GPT three, we're talking about a thirteen year old writing a, a, an essay. So GPT four, where's that? Is that then like a, an eighteen year old or kind of first year at university? GPT five, are we talking about like young professional level of analysis? You know, I wonder how long it is until we have the first. I don't know the first scandal because of politician's speech 
it turns out, has been written by an AI or a think tank pamphlet or a, a political manifesto. And, you know, there we get we get into yet greater ethical quandaries about what how much decision making power are we giving over to these to these algorithms? Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, what I wanted to get at by saying that I think we're going to have to grapple with the position of these tools, um, or the role of these tools in all of our lives is that they are tools, right? And in the same way as mostly now, if you go into a maths exam at school or at university or whatever, you're allowed to bring in a calculator, right? It's not perceived as kind of corrupting your learning. It's an additional tool. And I think we're going to we're going to have to question what role these tools play in our professional lives, in our writing. Are we going to say, you know, I agree with you. I think it would be problematic if politician wrote their speeches with ChatGPT, but is it so problematic if you start writing routine emails with ChatGPT? Can you print this stuff? Is that so problematic that I decide to write three paragraphs with like one sentence instead of instead of having to spend, you know, 20 minutes writing three paragraphs? I think arguably yes, but I think we, this is a kind of, kind of conversation we'll have to have. And like, you know, could I use ChatGPT to or whatever whatever AI tool, of which there are going to be many more, to maybe sketch out some ideas for a piece and I don't actually directly use any of the material, but in the same way as I might go and talk to someone to get some ideas for a piece, I might say, okay, chat GPT, what do you think the the three main issues around this topic are? And then kind of use that as a springboard. I mean, Mm. the point is that this is a tool and it's here now, and we now have to think about the place that this tool has in all of our lives. And because quite frankly, it's not going away. I think there are a lot of people who'd wish it to go away. I think it would probably make us more secure in all of our own careers if we could somehow magic this away, but it's not going away. I mean, in in an ideal world, it would cause us as societies to value different and more profound and more human forms of intelligence. As as you say, you know, if you can bring a calculator into a maths exam, maybe it should be the case. You You can use GP in university exams where it's saying you're going to have this as a tool in your professional life but your role in this new economy in this new labor market will be to be the human to make Mm. ethical judgments to make use of this technology in a constructive way and so we come to you know because there is the criticism that, that there are certain forms of education that turn out people that are very good at kind of skimming over the surface of, of, of things. I mean, this is the classic criticism of PPE, you know, politics. Where did you study, college. Jeremy? Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> Get him. I didn't study PPE, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. The accusation can be leveled more broadly than that, I accept that much, that it cultivates the sort of the ability to, to, to sort of skim across facts and, and sort of weave up something convincing seeming, but maybe not as profound as it should be. So perhaps, perhaps the optimistic take is that GPT will sort of make that sort of that sort of intelligence redundant and preference more genuinely original or profound forms of thought. Hmm. Certainly one to watch in 2023. We are going to close with, if you have listened before, you know, we do an annual holiday surprise, which is me warping the words of a beloved holiday classic to make it about this podcast. This is less than two minutes. I timed it. So if you hate it, if you hate merriment, Don't worry, it's all going to be over soon. Much like my time on this podcast. All right, it is an abridged and adapted version of Jingle Bells. Okay, And it wasn't written by GPT. And it was, no, it was written by me. I'd like to see a chatbot do this. Dashing to the mic, produced by Adrienne and May. Around the globe we go, chatting all the way, blah, blah, blah. Talking about the news, making analysis bright. What fun it is to listen to the world review tonight 
Oh, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Hey, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Next verse. If Jeremy is on, we're talking about Germany. Or maybe about elections. Somewhere else could be. Ido has thoughts on France, but he covers Ukraine too. Katie knows her dictators. I say we've got a lot to get through. Oh, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Hey, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Last verse. So thanks for listening. It's really been quite a year. Sorry that now on this last at my singing voice you hear. The team has done its best to cover C to C. And I'll be gone, but they'll be back in 2023. Hey, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Hey, world review, world review, world news all the way. Oh, what fun it is to talk about China and the USA. Hooray! That was beautiful. Thank you so much. I think I would I would submit that that's your best yet. Thank so, you so much. Jeremy. Going off on a high. But on on the point about you leaving Emily, thank you for everything you've done on World Review as a founding host in the deep and distant mists of early 2020. <laughs> Uh, shortly after the, the the pandemic first broke out, as I say, 240 episodes. You've been, I think, the the life and soul and the backbone of the the podcast, and and you will be much missed by your fellow hosts and guests and listeners. I know. So, I guess we just want to say thank you and all the best for your future endeavors. And we will all have very much hope to stay in touch. Thank you. And perhaps so we can lure you back at some point in the future, um, <laughs> whether or not to sing. Is an open question. <laughs> I think probably not to sing, but you know, I hope I hope we all uh, have a, a song in our hearts as we cover world affairs in the new year. All right, with that, Ido. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview with Alicia Kominchuk, historian of East Central Europe. And now we just want to say thank you to all World Review listeners who joined us for 2022. Check out the show notes in this episode. Tune in next week. And Happy New Year. All the best for 2023. And thanks to Emily for all her work on World Review and at the New Statesman. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.